0: The year is 370 AD. The Roman Empire is one of the largest states that the world has ever known. From the windswept shores of the Atlantic to the crystal waters of the Red Sea, some 70 million people live and die under the rule of just two individuals. For the most part, the dark days of the third century are in the past, now divided into two politically aligned but autonomous parts, one based in Rome, the other in Constantinople. The empire is prosperous once more. Capable of fielding hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and accumulating a staggering amount of wealth, from the Scottish marches to the deserts of Arabia, all roads still lead to Rome. In fact, for the majority of Roman citizens, all they have ever known is peace and prosperity. Yet somewhere, out there, beyond the Danube and the Rhine rivers, the naturally imposing frontiers of the Roman world, studded with the watchful eyes of border forts and legionary garrisons, unseen forces stir. Forces that threaten the very existence. ...of the known world. Out there, in the dark forests and ominous mountains of the east... ...a monster is on the way. In 369 AD... The renowned Roman statesman and orator Thermistius relates a historic meeting taking place on the Danube. On the one side stood the Emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. Bedecked with all the pomp and imperial regalia befitting his position, and accompanied by his elite retinue of soldiers, Valens was rowed out into the deep waters of the river, huge fortified castles and strongholds along the shore clearly visible behind him. Brutal siege engines and the steel of the Roman war machine glistening proudly in the heat of the day. As far as the Roman people were concerned, the man the emperor was going to meet came from a different world entirely. Behind Valens lay civilization, towns, cities, prosperity, wealth, home. Out there, across the Danube, Lay barbarism, fierce tribes of pagan warriors eking out a living on the scraps thrown to them by the Romans. So it had been for hundreds of years. So it had been for as long as anyone could remember. So it had always been. The man Valens was going to meet was the leader of one of those tribes. He was Athanaric, the overking of the Turvungian Goths, the closest tribe of that nation of people which now dominated all of the lands from the Carpathian Mountains to the Black Sea. The Goths had been known to the Romans for close to two centuries by this time. Athanaric's ancestors had been launching occasional campaigns against them since the late 2nd century. So much so that by the year 320, The Lower Danube was known as the Gothic Bank. Though Valens had much to be confident about that day. In time, all had been defeated by the might of Rome. Fierce, long-haired warriors from the north, Athanaric's men had been threatening the frontier since the mid-360s. Launching raids across the Danube, and generally making a nuisance of themselves in Thrace. As far as Themistius was concerned, very much putting his own political spin on events for the people of the Empire, Valens was here to subjugate and to force a peace treaty out of this beleaguered and recently defeated foe. The Emperor had first sent his armies out across the river two years earlier, in 367, and since then, had been attempting to bring the Goths to heel, by burning their villages and laying waste to the countryside, with limited success, before finally forcing them into an inconclusive battle, which had led to the meeting on the river. What Themistius leaves out of his narrative, however, is that when Athanaric and his household warriors approached the Emperor on their own rowing boat, it may have in fact been difficult to differentiate between the two bands of men, both used similar equipment, had similar steel armour, and even similar metalwork adorning their bodies. It's even possible that at least some of Valens's men were Goths themselves, or at least a related Germanic people, the Romans having employed barbarians in their armies for centuries by this time, a tradition that would continue for more than a thousand years to come. In fact, the fighting on the Danube in the 360s had begun not as a result of the Goths' propensity for violence, but as a result of a Roman civil war. Placed onto the eastern throne by his elder brother Valentinian in 364, Valens's rule was unstable at the best of times. Almost as soon as he received the imperial regalia of Constantinople, a usurper rose up to overthrow him. That contender just so happened to be a family member of Valens, his cousin Procopius. In 365, Athanaric had been encouraged by Procopius to send 3000 of his men over the frontier to fight on his behalf against the recently crowned Valens. Athanaric's only mistake was in picking the wrong side in the conflict, after which Valens crossed over the river to lay waste to Athanaric's kingdom out of revenge. Despite all of Themistius's grand rhetoric of civilised Roman and uncultured barbarian, what Valens's legionaries found when they crossed over the Danube might have surprised the landed elites of Gaul and Hispania. Living in such close proximity to the Romans for so long had inevitably rubbed off on those living beyond the frontier, especially the closest tribes such as the Goths. By the mid-4th century, the Tovingii, loosely translated as people of the forest, and their Grithungian neighbours, loosely meaning people of the steppe, dominated the region politically. Rather than one homogenous ethnic group, the Goths were more akin to a Germanic warrior elite, ruling over and alongside Iranian and Latin-speaking peoples, the previous inhabitants of the area. In return for keeping the region in order, and preventing attacks across the frontier, these powerful warlords with private armies received Roman subsidies and Roman coin. Some even built Roman-style villas, complete with terracotta roofs, stained glass windows, and marble pillars others began manufacturing Roman-style goods, in some instances of such a high quality that when they were first discovered by archaeologists, they were originally thought to be Roman-made. By the late 4th century, when the Goths raided into Roman territory, they weren't motivated by territorial expansion. They came... As client kings, looking for a better deal. The simplified narrative of Roman and Barbarian, as presented by Themistius, belays the complicated truth of the matter. Rather than a total victory over the Goths, as presented to the Roman people, the meeting in three hundred sixty nine was in fact more of a coming to terms for both sides. Ever the wily-tongued spin-doctor, Themistius also leaves out the fact that it was arguably the Romans who had sparked the violence in the first place, when Procopius invited the Goths over the border, and then, when Valens cut off food exports and trade that had been in place for decades as part of a deal made by his predecessor Constantius in the 330s. In short, the meeting on the Danube was simply the latest diplomatic overture between Roman and Goth in a lengthy relationship dating back nearly two centuries. Rather than civilised Roman and primitive barbarian, the reality of the situation was different. The empire hadn't grown so large without making a few mortal enemies along the way. The most powerful of these being Persia, ruled over by the Sasanian Shah Shapur II. In 367, just as Valens made his peace treaty on the Danube, Scipio launched himself headlong into Roman Caucasia with a colossal army of tens of thousands of professional warriors. Quite frankly, Valens had bigger fish to fry than a few thousand romanized barbarians living beyond the Balkans. He desperately needed to pull his men out of the Danubian frontier and relocate them to the east. And in order to do so, he had to come to terms with Athanaric The only way to do this was to restore the privileges that had previously been given to the Goths several decades earlier by Constantius. Far from a total victory as recorded by Themistius, the meeting on the Danube was in fact more of a face-saving exercise, a PR spectacle and compromise that could be presented to the Senate as a victory, though in reality was anything but Ominously for the Romans, as Valens' legionaries left the frontier behind them that autumn, riding hard towards Asia Minor and the Mesopotamian frontier beyond, for the most part, Athanaric's fighting capabilities remained intact. The world from which Athanaric and his warriors had sprung was, on the face of it, a very different world from that of Valens. By the 4th century AD, certain areas of the Empire, particularly in the East, had already been home to literate, city-dwelling societies for thousands upon thousands of years. Complex bureaucracies and infrastructures dating back millennia, having grown up on the fertile shores of the Mediterranean. The world beyond the frontier, however, which the Romans had kept at bay since the days of Julius Caesar, through centuries of brutal warfare against the Germanic tribes, was still almost entirely pre-literate, had no large cities to speak of, and as far as the average Roman citizen was concerned, was populated by primitive brutes, incapable of appreciating the civilised facets of society, due to their animalistic nature. By the 4th century, however... The truth was anything but. Perhaps imperceptible at first glance to the average Roman, unseen technological innovations and societal changes had transformed the world beyond the frontier. During the 2nd, 3rd and particularly the 4th centuries AD, many historians and archaeologists agree that a mass population explosion seems to have taken place amongst the Germanic tribes of Europe, and recent archaeological evidence may help us shed some light on the origins of this boom. It's thought that a revolution in agricultural techniques may have in part led to this boom in population. It only took a few generations and a handful of hard winters, but before long this new rise in population led to a deficit in food, which in turn kick-started a series of migrations and displacements that would eventually lead the Goths to the very gates of Rome itself. Originally thought by many to have hailed from as far north as Scandinavia, The archaeological evidence now suggests that the Goths probably emerged out of the forests of modern-day northern Poland in around the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. This was a brutal time of warring clans and competing tribes, ever spurred on into movement and warfare in search of food and plunder. Though the exact details of the exodus remain shrouded in the past, the Goths seem to have begun moving southwards from around 100 AD. Their journey wouldn't be an easy one. The frontier world they moved into was a violent mixing bowl of tribes and nations, pitted in seemingly perpetual warfare against one another and the Romans to the south. Innumerable tribes had migrated into the area before, most of whom were now inundated and subjugated by others. Only the strongest cultures survived. Like so many before, and so many to follow, one of those cultures came riding into Europe on horseback, from the wild steppes of the east. From around the first century BC, a new threat arrived on the plains north of the Black Sea. An Iranian-speaking people of semi-nomadic horse warriors, the Sarmatian hordes came spilling out onto the eastern half of the empire, bringing death in their wake. The Sarmatians remained a very real threat for for centuries to come. Though in the 2nd century AD they were finally landed a devastating blow by the philosopher-emperor, Marcus Aurelius, when he waged a lengthy series of campaigns against both them and a roll call of other Germanic tribes, in a series of conflicts known as the Macromanic Wars, after the main German tribe in question. The entire Danube frontier was set on fire by these conflicts, though after the dust had finally settled mass reconfiguration of the tribes had taken place. The Goths, relative newcomers on the scene, were one of the big winners of the reshuffle. The Sarmatians, along with the Dacian-speaking Carpi people of the Carpathian Mountains, were some of those who lost out, devastated by the war and now finding themselves increasingly subjugated by the fur-clad men of the north. By the early 200s, the Goths had arrived on the shores of the Black Sea, a far more temperate climate with more fertile lands and opportunities than their original homeland. Their journey had been a long and a hard one, fraught with wars and battles along the way. Now long lost to the realm of legend. But soon enough, they managed to assert themselves as the new overlords of the region, ruling over a myriad population of subject peoples such as Sarmatians and Dacians. Of course, it didn't take long for them to come head-to-head with Rome. All things considered, the 3rd century was one of the most catastrophic of any faced by the Roman Empire ...during its nearly 500-year-long history. In 217 AD, the murder of the tyrant Caracalla became the catalyst for a lengthy series of internal troubles... ...later referred to as the Anarchy of the 3rd Century... ...that threatened to destroy any semblance of authority within the now massive state. From Hispania to Arabia a roll call of usurpers and generals rose up to claim either the imperial title or some small corner for themselves to govern. In the east, vast swathes of land broke away under a dynasty centred on the trading metropolis of Palmyra. In the west, a line of Romano-Gallic aristocrats declared themselves breakaway emperors. And perhaps, worst of all, On the Rhine and the Danube frontiers, barbarians came flooding over en masse to lay waste to the frontier provinces. In 238 alone, six different figures laid claim to the imperial title, amidst a dizzying array of civil conflicts fought all over the empire. It was amidst this confusion and chaos that the first concrete mention of Goths occurs in the Roman sources raiding the city of Histria at the mouth of the Danube, before being paid off to leave. Clearly impressed by the rich cities and settlements they found on their southern flank, the Goths continued to capitalise upon the crisis, sweeping down through the Balkans in the 250s, 260s and 270s, to seize plunder and captives, as well as launching daring seaborne raids across the Black Sea, to do the same in Asia Minor. Finally, in 269 AD, a decisive blow was landed upon the invaders at the Battle of Nasus, with the future Emperor Aurelian leading the decisive cavalry charge that shattered the Gothic force. According to the historian Zosimus, writing 200 years later, some 50,000 Goths were either killed, dispersed throughout the empire as slaves, or taken to the amphitheatres to be torn apart by wild animals. The amusement of the masses. For the Romans, the psychological impact of this victory was so powerful that the Emperor Claudius became known to posterity as Claudius II Gothicus Maximus, or Conqueror of the Goths. For the Goths, whilst the defeat at Nisus may have been demoralising in the short term, their strength was by no means broken. They'd been fighting on Roman turf, and their own lands remained largely untouched. It did, however, represent the beginnings of a shift in consciousness. The leaders that began to come to the fore in the aftermath of the 270s increasingly came to admire the Roman way of life, and in time, to emulate it. Troubles with the breakaway Palmyrene Empire in the east and the Gallic Empire in the west were so urgent that the victory at Nisus could only serve as a temporary relief for the troubled empire. In 271, after Aurelian repelled yet another Gothic invasion, he ordered a full-scale retreat of everything on the northern side of the Danube, beginning the abandonment of the entire province of Dacia, a land that would soon become Gothic territory. Between 285 and 320, a slew of new emperors, most notably Diocletian, began settling vast numbers of Dacian-speaking Carpi people over the frontier to within the empire. The borders were now in place for good, and for the most part, the will of the Goths to fight had been subdued. They wouldn't trouble the Romans again for 50 years, and when they did, they were a different power altogether. Over the next century, though the Danube always separated them, trade and cultural exchange flourished between Roman and Goth. Christian missionaries even began to make significant headway. Before long, many within the Gothic warrior aristocracy came to appreciate the Roman way of life. The Goths had been trading with Romans for decades, and now, far from barbarous brutes, they would make their own versions of Roman items. Archaeological sites near the Black Sea, dating from the 4th century, suggest the existence of a class of Gothic master craftspeople, producing precious metallic items, pottery, and even glassware in Roman styles. No Gothic coins were minted yet. But Roman ones were used in abundance, representing a significant shift away from the Barter society that held sway beforehand. Eventually, it was these Germanic peoples that would keep alive the torch of Roman civilization well into the early Middle Ages, despite the part that they had to play in its violent demise. By the latter half of the 4th century, though to the Roman people living far from the frontier, the people beyond were still lawless barbarians, the reality was different, and a reckoning was on the way. The Goths now dominated all of the lands between the Black Sea and the Carpathian Mountains. When they reappear in the Roman sources in the early 320s, the Goths arrive as mercenaries, to the eastern emperor Licinius, under a king named Alica. The Turvungians found themselves on the losing side of a power struggle for the imperial throne. Unfortunately for Alica, Licinius's rival just so happens to be one of the most powerful emperors in history. He was Constantine the Great, the founder of Constantinople and the first Christian Roman Emperor. Upon defeating his rival at the bloody Battle of Chrysopolis in 324, Constantine headed over the Danube to seek his revenge on Licinius' Gothic allies, soon forcing them into submission and taking hostages. In truth, most of the Goths had had little to do with the Civil War, yet they suffered at Constantine's hands nonetheless. According to the Roman historian Amanius Marcellinus, Athanaric's father, Aaric, was one of those young noblemen taken into captivity, living out his formative years in Constantinople. This was a time-honoured tradition, dating back centuries, usually intended to pacify and Romanize barbarian tribes. Though, rather than Romanize Athanaric's father, who was already well aware of the sophisticated Roman way of life it apparently made him despise his hosts upon his return to the tavungians according to later writers he made his son swear an oath that he would never set foot on roman soil in the 360s the tavungian goths now under the rule of athanaric again became involved in a Roman civil war, though once more they picked the losing side and shortly afterwards suffered the consequences. In 364, the Emperor Valens severed trade and food exports beyond the Danube and launched a scorched-earth campaign, culminating in his meeting with the Thanaric in 367. As far as he was concerned, as he rode back across the river that summer, Athanaric had succeeded in restoring the status quo. Though little did he know it at the time, as he returned back to his heartlands, he was going to hear of a rising new threat from the east. A threat that in time would change everything. Out on the steps... Once held by the Sarmatians, new groups of warriors had been sighted. Rumours abounded of entire villages and outlying settlements simply disappearing. Smouldering ruins left in their wake as the only evidence of the terrible fate handed out to those poor souls. Like the Sarmatians before them, these were horsebacked warriors with strange alien features. Skulls purposely deformed from birth, and faces ritually scarred in order to terrify their enemies. Much to the horror of the Goths living around the Black Sea, the Huns had arrived. In the east, meanwhile, by 371, Valens had made significant gains against his Persian enemies. Going some way towards solidifying the borders, and ensuring the rich Roman cities of the east remained defended. Though by 375, Shapur was back, forcing the emperor to draw all of his resources and prepare a huge army for the coming war. By the end of 375, rumours began to trickle over the Danubian frontier of heavy fighting taking place to the north of the Black Sea. These were strange tidings. Trouble usually came from the northwest, towards modern-day Poland, not from the northeast, towards modern-day Ukraine. The last major trouble to come from that way had been the Sarmatian horsemen, sweeping away all before them in the 1st century AD. But that was centuries ago. After the reconfiguration of the tribes that foreshadowed the arrival of the Goths in the 3rd century, there had been relative stability in the region. For the most part, the rumours were probably laughed off, especially for the officials further to the east. After all, they had much more pressing matters to be concerned with, in the form of Shapur's Persian war machine. Finally, when a group of Gothic ambassadors arrived at Valens's regional capital of Antioch, having journeyed for more than 1,500 kilometres, they told him in person of what was happening beyond the Danube. It immediately became clear that the stability previously wrought by the Goths had now broken up entirely. The Huns had thundered out of the steppe, sweeping away all before them uprooting almost the entirety of the Gothic warrior elite, along with hundreds of thousands of their subjects. And now, to Valens' abject horror, the Goths were attempting to cross the Danube. Faced with Shapur's impending onslaught, Valens simply couldn't get to the Danube in time to oversee the situation. Forced to make a difficult decision, and fearing the chaos that might follow should he refuse the request of the Goths, he gave orders that provided they convert to Christianity, surrender their weapons upon arrival, and agree to military service, the Turvingians would be allowed over. Though in retrospect this decision may seem reckless, in reality, settling refugees within the borders of the Empire was far from unusual. In fact, a constant stream of peoples had been absorbed and settled into the empire since its very earliest days. The Dacian Carpi people being a recent example on the Danube, and over in the Western Empire, the Franks being established as a buffer state to the other Germanic peoples another. These newcomers often provided excellent manpower for the military. The Franks in particular... ...serving as mostly loyal auxiliaries for a century to come. And ultimately, taking up the torch of Roman civilization ...after the final collapse of imperial administration in Gaul. Similarly, if the situation were to go bad... ...it would be relatively simple to wipe these groups out of existence. The Limagantes, for example... ...a tribe of Sarmatians allowed to cross over into the empire in the mid-fourth century, had been annihilated by Valens' predecessor, Constantius. And later, in 409, when the Skiri tribe had been similarly allowed to enter, they were either enslaved or massacred. For Valens, this new situation likely seemed little different to those that had come before. And besides, he had the Persians to face... Delegating to his subordinate in the Balkans, Lupechinus, and perhaps wishing to use the Goths as manpower for his war in the east, Valens allowed the entire Turvingian nation to cross over the border. In 376, surrendering their weapons as they came, somewhere between 100 and 200,000 Turvingian Goths crossed over into Roman territory east of the Carpathians to be settled in temporary camps. In return for food and shelter they would provide military service, and those that hadn't already done so would convert to the Arian Christianity favoured by Valens. To the Roman people, as usual, orators and rhetoricians such as Thermistius would present the arrival of the Goths ...as a surrender to the might of the empire. In truth, however, for reasons that aren't entirely clear... ...the Tovingii were settled in large enough groups... ...so that they retained their political and cultural unity... ...potentially in a place of their own choosing... ...Thrace. For historian Peter Heather, this suggests... ...that they probably arrived on much better terms than usual... The difference in 376 potentially being the existence of other, more powerful enemies that the Romans would have to contend with. First in the form of the Sassanids, and then the Huns. As the long lines of Goths passed over the Roman border defences that year, neither side fully trusted the other. But for now, they were forced into an uneasy alliance. In order to further demonstrate the power of Rome, Valens seems to have given express orders to block the passage of the other Gothic tribe behind the Tervingii. The Greothingians, who had faced the worst of the Hunnic attacks in the previous year, and then braved hundreds of miles from east of the Dnesta River in modern Ukraine since then. For better or for worse, for the time being they remained on the other side of the Danube, fully armed and ready to defend themselves. When the Tvingii finally arrived in Thrace to set up their new way of life, the former High King, Athanaric, was nowhere to be seen. He was still on the other side of the river, with just a handful of followers making a stand against the Huns in the Carpathian Mountains. In Gothic society, only the strongest ruled, and in the wake of a slew of defeats in the wake of the Hunnic invasions, a new ruler had arisen to lead the Goths in his place. His name was Fritigern. He was probably already an Arian Christian when the Huns arrived, and it had been his plan to cross into Roman territory. Little did the Romans know that once Fritigern was across the river, nothing would ever be the same again.